the government has said, well, you don't have to pay your mortgage and you don't have to pay your rent. So right. people's incomes go up, their expenses go down by let's say 33%, and the government is paying them to stay home and not produce goods and services. I saw Biden uh, signed another, I think the 101st or 108th executive action, not order, but action. He declared emergency over the Russian meddling in the election. It's gonna be a huge super spreader event. And the next thing you know, you're gonna walk outside and there's gonna be body bags. If it was really a pandemic, they wouldn't have to tell you. And they can do all these stimulus bill bills and whatnot because the Fed will just sit back and monetize the debt. And they don't really have to worry uh, about interest rates. But I also think that if they didn't have unlimited money printing at their disposal, we might not have seen the whole global economy shut down either. I mean, it's, 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 it's impossible to calculate how distorted our economy is as a result of artificially low interest rates. Before the Federal Reserve, we actually saw deflation. But if you look at the difference between U3, U6, and then how those things are calculated, no one in their right mind would say that the U3 number is the actual unemployment rate. Venezuela is a perfect example because they were one of the richest countries in the world, one of the, the richest Latin American country, I believe. That's right. That's I mean, they, right. Have, they have massive amounts of natural resources, but when they decided to put the crony buddies in to run the natural resources, the production went down. So we see the financial economy growing and growing and growing. You can create a derivative, you can rehypothecate a treasury, you can right. make all this fiat money as a result of that and then actually buy real good you can buy property you can buy commodities things that are tangible while at the same time the real economy is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking right but we live in a we live in a debt-based system today which means they have to constantly inflate the money supply a lot of people think that fractional reserve banking in and of itself leads to runaway inflation and uh, there, there's no getting away from it but that's not true what we had in the early 1800s prior to the civil war is something called free banking. I used to watch as a kid, the Jetsons, and like we dreamed of having a robot clean the house for us. Like that's deflationary. So it seems like natural law, human ingenuity, it leads to deflation and it goes exactly against the system they're trying to create, which is inflationary. So it's like they're trying to defy natural law. In 2009, after the great financial crash, when the banksters wrecked the entire global financial system, Ron Paul put out a book titled End the Fed, and it was a rally cry to explain what was going on with central banks, how money printing was going to ruin the world, and it brought a lot of attention and it brought a lot of action. And now today, people are focused on what the central bank is doing, and they understand the manipulation. Now, there is somebody else picking up that torch and continuing on with the attack or the press back on the Federal Reserve. And that is my good friend, George Gammon, who we're sitting down with today. We're going to talk about what the Federal Reserve does with printing money and what kind of problems that leads to in society. We're going to talk about how they're able to do this, or even how they're getting away with it, and what he is doing what regular people can be doing right now to make sure this does not continue. We talk about so much on the macroeconomic scale. Um, you do not want to miss this conversation. I'm excited for it. Let's go ahead and just jump right into it with George. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. And today I am sitting with one of my good buddies, George Gammon. Uh, you have probably seen him before either on his videos or, of course, on my channel. And uh, we we're, we're going so deep before we started going, but we need to get recorded now. So we have so much to talk about. It's an exciting show and uh, so much to talk about. But anyway, George, uh, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me today. 
Uh, thanks for having me, Mark. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, uh, you hardly need any introduction. You've been on my show a couple of times and I'm sure most of my audience already watches your show. Um, but why don't you just kind of tell us what you're focusing on right now? I know, um, you've been moving around a lot. You're kind of, there's, there's, there's a couple of big things that are on your mind. Why don't you just kind yeah. of give us what you're doing and what you're thinking about? Yeah. Well, usually I talk about macroeconomics and I still love that. That's my passion. And I've, I've still been talking about that extensively on my channel and investing in gold and Bitcoin and stocks and foreign stocks and uh, crisis investing, you know, the Jim Rogers types of things and kind of Austrian economics and breaking down what the Fed is doing with the repo market, quantitative easing and whatnot. But um, the last couple of weeks, especially, I've, uh, I haven't shifted my focus, but I, I've, my thinking has been really around personal freedom and liberty. And that was always a main driver of mine. But uh, it's right in the forefront right now. I was in Phoenix for the last six months, which is rare because I don't spend that much time in the United States. But the last uh, few weeks, I had to go down to Tucson. And Tucson is just a complete ghost town. I mean, it's unbelievable. Downtown Tucson. I mean, there's no students. All the shops and restaurants that I used to go to when I was there maybe three or four years ago are all boarded up. And I mean, it's, it's like something out of Atlas Shrugged. If you uh, read the book or watched those, those films where, you know, the plywood across the, the front door says, you know, Tucson, thanks for 40 years in business. Hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC um, chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin. And you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more, or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin. Now, as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. Um, and BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. Mm, so now, sad. yeah, exactly. And, uh, and then everyone is just over the top with this, uh, we'll call it the Cerveza sickness hysteria. Yeah. You know, people uh, walking outside just with no one within uh, 100 yards of them. And, and they're wearing two masks and a, a face shield. People driving their car down the street with no one in the car, you know, wearing a, a mask and a, a face shield. And you're just like, what, what is going on here? This is just totally bizarre. And then I went to uh, Idaho to visit a family member. And that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Because prior to, uh, you know, when I was in Phoenix, it was a little bit of an issue. You had to work in the grocery store or in the gym. I was like, eh, 
I don't like this, but um, it, it's not the focus of my attention. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but then when I went to Idaho, I went to Sandpoint. I don't know if you've been there, but uh, I was no one. I mean, as soon as you cross the border from Washington into Idaho, it's like night and day difference. Uh, I, my driver took me to a gas station there and I went inside to use the restroom and I was just about ready to put on the mask. You know, it's almost like a habit but when you go into a place and you see the sign on the front there. Yeah. So I reached into my pocket. He's like, oh, no, no, Mr. Gammon, we're in Idaho right now. I said, well, <laughs> wow. okay, what does that mean? He goes, no, you don't need a mask here. And th these are the good old boys. So you go in and sure enough, no restaurants, no uh, convenience stores, just the workers aren't wearing a mask. The chef isn't wearing it. The, the waitress, nobody that I saw wearing a mask. And I went up to Sandpoint. It's the exact same thing there. Even when you go into a coffee shop. That people weren't wearing wow. a mask, which is you know, generally where, where those people hang yeah. out. And so I was talking to my family members that evening and telling them that, that, you know, not only do you have to wear a mask on the plane in the airport, but you go to an airport and every five minutes they, they've got that, that, it's that, so bad. Gripped yeah. on like a loop, just barking at you to yeah. not only wear your mask, but make sure it's over your nose and all these, and it's federal regulation and you're going to be kicked out of the airport. And every single time you're in a plane now, the gal can't come on and wish you a safe flight or, you know, welcome you. It's just barking instructions at you to make yeah. sure that you wear a mask nonstop. And so I was telling my family members, this, I was telling them that people uh, in Arizona, as an example, are wearing them outside, are wearing them in grocery stores. They didn't believe me. Huh. They didn't wow. believe me because they haven't been out of Sandpoint since uh, March of 2020. They literally thought I was joking wow. or exaggerating. And I said, no, this, this is this is real. And it just goes to show you how important it is, the, the, the local environment and the people that are in the culture of the people around you. But then you start to ask a question. You know, I had done the research and even, uh, you know, I'd look at the John Hopkins website and uh, looked at the data, even from the World Health Organization and trying to just decipher through everything, right? Trying to be as objective as I possibly could. And you see that this is something from a, a fatality rate that really only affects people under the age of, let's say, 60 that over, are overweight or over have, the age of 60. Or I'm sorry, over the age of 60, at, and or people under that have, uh, uh, you know, health issues somehow, overweight, or they have lung issues, breathing issues, and even and so if you're healthy, it, it's really barely, uh, it's basically on par with the flu. I mean, it's a little bit worse if you look at the statistics, but but not that much. And now all of a sudden. You, you've got a vaccine. So if you want to get the vaccine, if that's your thing, then you can go do it and, uh, you know, more power to you. But then you start to kind of scratch your head <clears throat> and, and say, okay, well, I'm in Idaho. It, 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 how bad can this possibly be if my family members who have lived in Sandpoint, by the way, for 40 years, so it's not like they don't know people there, they just moved there. They've been there for 40, they know everyone in the community. So how is it that this community of say 10 to 15,000 people that has it's tons of tourism, right? Yeah. How is it that they don't even know about it? How, it, how is it that the Cervasa sickness is such a non-issue up here with zero compliance? I mean, zero compliance. Right. Yeah. And then you start to just think, you know, like, well, wait a minute, what, what are we doing here? Like, like, what is this all about? Then I went to Puerto Rico 
And then that was, uh, <laughs> you know, that was tough. That obviously. was a short trip. <laughs> yeah. I was planning on staying there for a couple of months and hanging out with you and, and Maloney and Schiff and, you know, all the guys. And uh, that didn't pan out because of how strict the regulations are there. They're really, really over the top. So then it really starts to dawn on you that, yes, you want to understand the economic environment around you. You want to understand the world. You want to make money. But if you don't have personal freedom, it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin you own. It doesn't right. matter how much gold you, it doesn't matter how, what the value of your stock portfolio or your real estate or the commodities. If, if you can't walk outside, if, if you're being locked in your house, um, what, what, you know, you're not wealthy. You, right. you're, you're still dirt poor. No quality um, of life. So yeah. no quality of life. That's right. So then I started to really focus on, okay, at least for the next six months, where can I go that has the most amount of freedom and liberty so I can continue to, to focus on the building wealth and economics and all the, the good things that we always love to talk about? Yep. So I, I did a Google search and, um, you know, Florida was an obvious choice because I was right there in Puerto Rico. And then I Googled the uh, counties in Florida that have, that have not had a mask mandate the longest or uh you know the, the places that got rid of it the earliest so uh sarasota county i saw got rid of it back in january of 2021 so i'm like okay that's good uh, let's go there and just kind of try to get my bearings so that's where i've been and i can tell you i'm really really happy with florida relatively speaking it is a fantastic place to be but it is there are little micro cultures or micro ecosystems or environments um, just like there are everywhere. As an example, in Miami, it's, it's pretty draconian there right. uh, for sure, like California. But um, you, you come out here and it's, it's pretty good in Sarasota. You go down to Naples and it's like Idaho in wow. Naples. It's like 2019 where it's just... Uh, it's just pure freedom. You know, there's a few people wearing a mask, but you're, you have the, the, the liberty. They leave the decision-making up to you right? as to whether you want to wear one or not, whether you want to close your business, whether you want to stay inside. And again, oddly enough, no, everyone's out. Everyone's enjoying themselves. Everyone's going to the beach. I mean, if you listen to the mainstream media, if you went outside just one time without a, a mask or heaven forbid you go into a grocery store or if you have more than two or three people meet up in the same venue at the same time that are right. that are you know that aren't six feet apart or whatever, it's going to be a huge super spreader event. And the next thing you know, you're going to walk outside and there's going to be body bags. Yeah lining the streets. Everyone if, it, if, if it was really a pandemic, they wouldn't have to tell you you would see it everywhere, right? Like there'd be bodies piled up. Like in, in China, the, the original videos, like people were dropping dead everywhere, right? On the street. Um, yeah. So they wouldn't have to tell us with the media, we would know. Yeah, and it's the same thing with the, the, the vaccine thing. And I, I mean, again, I think that's something that if you want to take a vaccine, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. I'm not going to criticize you. It's your decision. It's your body. It should be up to you. Uh, just like taking any drug, it, it should be up to you. I personally am going to hold off because I don't really see the value in it for someone who's who's healthy and, and 48 years old and uh, is 
probably a little too thin, <laughs> if anything. Yeah. So the, the risk reward just isn't there for me when you look at it. But, um, you know, you, you have it's the same type of question, Mark, where I see all of these campaigns by celebrities and politicians where they're taking selfies of themselves, getting uh, the shot, of course, with a mask on. They're and getting paid. For, they're getting paid for that. Oh, I didn't even realize that. But then you, it, it, it begs the same question that, listen, if this thing was that bad, I mean, people would be lining up to get a vaccine, even if there was a, a significant downside in a vaccine that really hasn't been tested that yeah. much. Again, it's risk reward, right? If, if there's a 50% chance you're going to die from the cervasis sickness, well, listen, if that vaccine is, you know, it, it, a good example of that is chemotherapy. Right. You know, chemotherapy has a lot of downside. Yeah. Like if your only other option is is just to deal with uh, whatever cancer you have, well, you're going to get the chemotherapy, right? And you don't have to pay people to get the chemotherapy. You don't need a political campaign or a, a, camp, a, a media campaign with celebrities right. in order to convince people to get radiation therapy or, yeah that, that's a that's that's a really good point i think in the last stimulus bill there was like a billion dollars set aside for marketing kind of promotion of this um i mean crazy that they'd have to spend that kind of money uh, but those are all good points i don't want to i don't want to dive so deep into that but what i would like to do though is i'd like to kind of take that and pivot it a little bit and so um i want to end up talking about the federal reserve because um, yeah. there's some big news there. But I think this is a good point that we can use kind of this conversation and segue into that, because it seems like what the the Fed has done by creating all this money, they've created fiat money, which has now created this entire ecosystem of fiat food and fiat health. And it's made everybody very short sighted. Right. Every There's no longer saving, no longer sowing right. before you reap. And so it's created this whole culture of like instant gratification. Like, I don't need to worry about my immune system. Who, who when was the last time you even heard that mentioned on the news, the media, your immune system? Uh, yeah. But instead, I just want, I, I just want a shot. I just want the magic pill. Um, and I see that. But also something that I'm worried about that I want to talk about for a minute is um, fiat money. Again, giving the government unlimited power to do whatever they want. Um, and now everything is an emergency. So they're operating under emergency acts, which they believe gives them the power to bypass the Constitution, I suppose. Oh, sure. Yeah, the Constitution. Um, they don't even look so we're it. operating this in emergency uh, nonstop. So they can basically do whatever they want. Yesterday, I saw Biden uh, signed another, I think the 101st or 108th executive action, not order, but action. He declared emergency over the um, Russian meddling in the um, in the election. So now there's emergency powers over the internet and communications. And this is all fiat money problems, in my opinion. I don't know if you kind of see the same thing. Well, they can only do that insofar as we don't have inflation. Uh, once we get significant inflation where people see the prices of gas go up every single time they go to the gas station or they see the prices of groceries go up every single time they go to the grocery store, then that's kind of their kryptonite. But yeah, I mean, until we get to that point in time, then they, they've kind of, 
they've got the power of the of the the printer or the printing press, and they can do all these stimulus bill, bills and whatnot because the Fed will just sit back and monetize the debt, and they don't really have to worry uh, about interest rates. But and, do you see? Yeah. But do you see that there? Do you see maybe like I do that their ability to print this unlimited amount of money starts creating all these types of distortions and problems in the market? Do you think these are symptoms of their ability to continue to print trillions of dollars or no? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to go down the, the list, I mean, it's, 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 it's impossible to calculate how distorted our economy is as a result of artificially low interest rates, quantitative easing, money printing, right. stimulus. Uh, you've got the distortions in the economy. You've got the malinvestment. You've got a misallocation of resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about what's happening right now. I just did a video the other day where I studied the income levels for the average American across the United States. And this was not some libertarian website or Austrian website. This was straight from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, so a government website. And they showed that from 2020, excuse me, from 2019 to 2020, average incomes in the United States went up by 6.1%. Okay. And it, that that's a huge, huge increase. That is a massive increase, especially when you contrast that to the, to the fact that the unemployment rate that we had jumped higher than it did in its very worst point during the GFC, yeah. the global financial crisis. So how can incomes be going up? And if we have a 15% unemployment rate, and I realize the headline number has come down, what they call U3, but if you look at the difference between U3, U6, and then how those things are calculated, no one in their right mind would say that the U3 number is the actual unemployment rate. So now it's still at, say, yeah. at 12%, 15%. I mean, you've got millions and millions of Americans that are not working. So by, by definition, we have fewer goods and services Mm -hmm. But we have 6% higher income rates. The savings rates have gone through the roof. While at the same time, the government has said, well, you don't have to pay your mortgage and you don't have to pay your rent. So right. people's incomes go up, their expenses go down by, let's say, 33%. And the government is paying them to stay home and not produce goods and services. Right. The only path that puts you on is not only the road to serfdom, talking about personal freedom, right. but it also takes you straight to the path of inflation yep. and, a, and, and society as a whole becoming poorer. So mm -hmm. why do I say that? Because one of the, I don't know if it's a technique, I don't know if this was done on purpose, who knows, but unfortunately, majority of Americans believe the amount of currency units you have in your bank account, which by the way, your bank account is just an IOU from the bank saying right. that they, they owe you IOUs yeah. right? because a dollar is just an IOU. So it's an electronic IOU for an IOU. Yeah. But most people <laughs> think that, that that number is is wealth. And so if that number increases for society at large, well, therefore we are uh, wealthier because we have more currency units. That, that is complete nonsense. And if you just take it to its extreme, if you and I were stranded, stranded on an island, as an example, and we had a chest full of a billion dollars, but there's just some coconuts and salt water, we're extremely poor because mm -hmm. there's no stuff. Yeah. There, there, there's just no stuff. And therefore, 
you don't measure the wealth of a society by how many currency units it has. You measure it by the amount of goods and services right. it is producing efficiently. And we, it's obvious that we're producing a lot fewer goods and services. I mean, just for- What do for you mean? We have all kinds of financial services. Don't those count? <laughs> and that's a good point. So we see the financial economy growing and growing and growing, that you can create a derivative, you can rehypothecate a treasury, and you can right. make all this fiat money as a result of that, and then actually buy- real goods, you can buy property, you can buy commodities, things that are tangible, while at the same time, the real economy is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Right. But at some point, there's no more good. There, there's no more goods and services. Uh, Venezuela would be a great example of that. You know, the last time that I went to a grocery, like a normal grocery store, I went in to buy a, a toothbrush. And this was like, just like a Smith's or something like that, or a Safeway, what most people would, you know, there's a mainstream grocery store. Right. And um, usually when you go into a grocery store, you're accustomed to seeing just a, a unlimited supply of toothpaste and toothbrushes. I mean, there's, it's like a paradox of choice. There's so many right. of them. Barren, completely barren. There was just like three or four little toothbrushes hanging on there it looked like they just got done with a, a you know, 90% off sale of toothbrushes wow. or something. <laughs> but you see, my point is, obviously, I'm someone that can afford a toothbrush, but it doesn't matter. There, there's none available. I would challenge any of your viewers or listeners who are living in the United States, especially areas like Phoenix and Tucson, try to get an Uber. Good right. luck with that. Good luck with that. Back in the day, as most of us know, it would take you maximum five minutes to get an Uber. Now you're lucky if you can get one in 45 minutes. Try going to a nice restaurant. Yeah, I just I just had that problem in uh, I was in Jacksonville last weekend and and uh, I couldn't get a couldn't get a ride and I actually had to book it a couple of days in advance to make sure I could get a ride. Exactly. Same thing with restaurants. Same thing. So, yes, maybe people are getting richer if they own assets, if they own stocks, but their quality of life is deteriorating. And that right. just goes back to what I'm saying that that we've got to try to get people to think of wealth in terms of goods and services and not in fiat currency, currency units, or the number that's on your bank account. Because if wealth was measured by the number that's on in people's bank account, then Venezuela would be the wealthiest country on the planet Earth because right. everyone's a trillionaire. Right. But you wouldn't want to move to Venezuela. Right. Yeah. And some of that, though, too. And, and, and I think that's why, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that first conversation, just about freedom and being able to, you know, have freedom of choice and things like that. And why that conversation is important, even when we talk about economics, and a lot of times people are like, hey, shut up, just talk about money, right? That's what you guys talk about. But these are so intertwined, right? You can't really have one without the other. You mentioned the, 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 the road to serfdom. Uh, Hayek's uh, seminal work. I recommend everybody yeah. go read that book yeah, because absolutely. it really lays that case out, right? How economics and, and policy, social economics, it, it, it's all intertwined. You can't have one without the other because as to your point, wealth is goods and services. And if I don't have freedom to move and freedom to choose and freedom to create, then I don't create goods and services. And so um, uh, I'm sure you see it on your comments all the time. People say, stay in your lane. You don't know anything about, I did a video about the Paris Accord agreement, not about, not about the science, but about the agreement. And I'm like, oh, you don't know anything about science. I'm like, I know about the agreement and, and, and it's all intertwined, right? I know about common sense. Yeah. 
that, that's one thing I, I, I know a lot about is, is common sense. So <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I typically respond to those. Yeah, exactly. So you have, you have a, and, and you mentioned Argentina or Venezuela, I think, and Venezuela is a perfect example because they were one of the richest countries in the world. One of the, the richest Latin American country, I believe. That's right. That's I mean, they, right. Have, they have massive amounts of natural resources. Um, but um, when they decided to put the crony buddies in to run the natural resources, the production went down. Now they can't even get their oil out of the ground anymore. And so while they have the resources, they can't even produce them or whatever. Um, and so to your point, right, the good, the real valuable goods and services are just gone. And what do they have left? Yeah, that, that's right. And they made some horrible mistakes, but you know, we're going down the same path. I mean, I, I say that and people kind of laugh it off. But if you think about what happened with Venezuela and their hyperinflation, they built their entire economy around the production of oil. And then they nationalized it. And then they just took all the profits and distributed it. And that's when, you know, people like Sean Penn and Bernie Sanders, and they're all going down there and, you know, getting their selfies taken with Hugo Chavez saying that this was the the greatest economic miracle for the poor and middle class that the world has ever seen. Okay, fine. But again, you're, you're putting all your economic eggs in one basket. So what happens when the price of oil goes from $100 a barrel down to 25? Your economy implodes. And the only thing that you can do is print money because you've got dollar denominated uh, debt or, or whatever. And then you, you get this hyperinflation type of scenario. So let's think about what's happening right now in the United States. We're just spending trillions of dollars per year in stimulus, quote unquote. And this is this, this deficit spending that I don't see the government stopping. I, I think you have to go back and look they can't, at quantitative yeah. <laughs> easing, right? Look at QE. When Ben Bernanke first came out and announced quantitative easing, he didn't say, hey, guys, this is QE1. He said, hey, this is QE, meaning right. we only need one. Mm. So, But there, sure enough, we have QE2, QE3, QE4. Now we have QE infinity. Right. Just think what would happen right now to the United States economy if the Fed just stopped QE, just stopped, done. And then they start doing quantitative tightening just to reduce their balance sheet back down to $800 billion where it was prior to the GFC. I mean, your viewers who are, are relatively sophisticated or that watch your show a lot, they know that that would just completely implode the U.S. Yeah. economy. There would be just this domino effect. Well, it's, it's a lot like, um, you know, Schiff always uses the term monetary heroin. And I think that's a great way to describe it. What happens is you give the drug addict more and more heroin. And in order to achieve the same effect, they have to take more and more of the drug and heaven forbid they stop taking the drug. Right. Their body just can't deal with it. And they most likely pass away. And I think it's the exact same thing now with the economy. We've done it with quantitative easing and now we're doing it with stimulus. Right. Just think what would have happened to the U S economy in 2020, if we would not have had the stimulus, if we yeah, would it not would, have, it would never have worked. people to stay home. <laughs> well, we would have got all of that malinvestment and misallocation of resources. We would have got all that bad 
um, all those distortions out of the market would have been washed away. We would have had to taken the we would have uh, we would have taken the economic medicine, but it would have been extremely extremely we would painful have, uh... for two or three years. But it would have built a solid foundation for us to continue to grow on instead of of just going to rehab using that heroin analogy, we just decided to take more and more heroin. We said, okay, we're taking one shot a day. Now let's just take 10 shots a day. And oh my gosh, we feel so much better. Well, yeah, we do feel better for a time for the next year, for the next two years. But now all of a sudden we're going to need to take 20 shots of heroin, 30 shots of heroin until a point where the heroin kills the heroin addict. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing that's going to happen to the economy now as a result of the decisions we've made or the government has made in 2020 and continue to make worse today in 2021. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's two sides, right? It's it's the proverbial ripping the bandaid off. Right. It hurts. But but it's but it's better. Um, but I also think that if they didn't have unlimited money printing at their disposal, we might not have seen the whole global economy shut down either. Right. So they if, if they didn't know they could reinflate it, maybe they never would have shut it down in the first place. So those those policies kind of drive each other. One thing I'd like to um, ask about is. Um, it seems that and I, and I know you've talked about this, right, the the you know, before the Federal Reserve, we actually saw deflation. Yeah. Right. But we live in a we live in a debt based system today, which means they have to constantly inflate the money supply because money is created off of debt. But what I think about is that, um, you know, these economists can make these these complex um, arguments, but I like to break things down to the most basic first principle levels. Right. And we have natural laws of the universe like gravity. You, you, You can you can defy gravity for so long, but it eventually snaps back. And one of the natural laws of the universe, I believe, just human ingenuity is deflationary. Right. So like I used to carry one brick at a time, but I invented a wheelbarrow. Right. That was deflationary. I used to watch as a kid, the Jetsons and like we dreamed of having a robot clean the house for us. Like that's deflationary. So it seems like natural law, human ingenuity is leads to deflation and it goes exactly against a system they're trying to create, which is inflationary. So it's like they're trying to defy natural law, which, Mm. of course, leads to distortions. And I think eventually, just like gravity fails. What, What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, you're using deflation synonymously with productivity. And so it, well, more ingenuity, right? Be more and more productive. You're just right. you're, yeah. you're using a wheelbarrow instead of your hands. You're being more productive. It reminds me of the story of Milton Friedman when he went to this location. I believe it was in Asia and he was there with his wife on vacation. And one of the local politicians took him to show off this new jobs program that they had. Mm-hmm. And all these people, all these guys were out there digging these holes to build this building or something like that to build a foundation. And they were all using shovels. Hey, sorry to interrupt this video just one more time. I'm not running Google ads, so it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest 
on your Bitcoin, um, better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it. All right. I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. Now, I've done a whole video on this. Uh, you can find it. I'll link it down in the description below how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll, I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. And Milton Friedman says, hmm, that's weird. Why, why aren't you using uh, a bulldozer or a, a big machine to do that? And the guy said, oh, no, Mr. Friedman. No, no, no. We can't do that because, see, this is a jobs program. And in order to, if we did that, we'd only have three or four jobs. But now we've got 40 or 50 jobs. Wow. And he said, okay, well, if that's your objective, then why don't you just use spoons? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because then you'd have a whole ton of jobs. But see, but most people would laugh that off because of how unproductive it would be and how long it would take you. But it's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And from the year 1800 to 1900, the prices in the United States due to productivity and, in, and productivity gains went down by 50 percent, 50 percent over a hundred year period. And I would like to point out that this was during a time of fractional reserve banking. A lot of people think that fractional reserve banking in and of itself leads to runaway inflation and uh, there, there's no getting away from it, but that's not true. What we had in the early 1800s prior to the Civil War is something called free banking. Right. And this is where, and it's not where you get a free checking account. It's basically where the banks are lending at, at, at will. They set up their own reserve requirements and they, they are lending out more than they have. You know, it's, it's, fra it's fractional reserve, but the government isn't involved. The government didn't get involved until the Civil War. Right. And of course, we didn't have a central bank. But if you think about what was happening back then is if you owned a bank, and you had all of these people depositing their gold with you, base money, and then you were creating currency units and IOUs based on that gold, and then you're creating additional ones to lend those out, but you were responsible. It was your bank, and if the bank goes bust, that means you go bust. Which they did so, all the time. Yeah, so what you do is you'd say, okay, well, my lending standards are going to be really high. I'm only going to lend to someone that I know can pay me back. Right. So they've got to have a great job or most likely what you would do is you would lend to businesses that are, that want to grow their business and want to create more efficiencies, right? They want to use that money for capital investment. Why? Not, not create consumption. more goods and services. That's right. There you go. Right. To create more good. So what you had is you had the amount of goods and services in the economy actually expanding faster mm -hmm. than the rate of money growth, even though we had this fractional reserve system. So it, it's not about really the, the rate of money growth. Uh, and I, for, I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, but I'd actually agree with the people, uh, the MMTers, 
when it comes to that. It, it, it isn't necessarily the rate of money growth in and of itself. It's the rate of growth in goods and services relative to the rate of money growth. And if you have goods and services increasing at the same uh, rate or a higher rate, then that's going to give you a price stability or to your earlier point, a price deflation over the long-term, which ironically enough, really benefits not the rich, but it, it benefits them too, but it benefits the poor and the middle class. And it creates a, a society that really is incentivized to save money. Because as an example, back in the late 1800s, you could get a 7% real return on your money because deflation was about two or 3% and you could get about four or 5% just by putting your, your money in a savings account. Right. So you could get a 7% return just by putting your money in a savings account. Why on earth would you want to buy stocks? Like right. why on earth would you want to? Well, you might, you, you, some people might still want to, to get a better return, but you're not forced to. That's right. And it would be a very small portion of the population. It would be just the professionals, you know, and, and guys that like, like the Jim Rogers of the day, you know, those guys I'm sure would still do it, but just the average Joe and Jane, they would have no desire whatsoever. Uh, and let me, let me, that. let me chase that down for a second, George, because um, really what happened with money is it allowed for specialization. So I used to have to raise my own cows and my own chickens and make my own clothes. And so my, make my own food, all that. Right. But when we had money, it allowed us to just be the best cow grower in the world, the best crop grower in the world and allowed specialization. I believe we've lost a massive amount of ingenuity, a brain drain, if you will, because of this, right? So instead of just being the best brain surgeon in the world and focusing on the best groundbreaking things, I also have to be an investor. So I can't be 100% focused on saving human lives with brain surgery. I have to worry about my portfolio at the same time. And you know, right, if I focus on one thing 100%, that's good. But what if I only put half of my focus there? And so imagine the brain drain that we've lost because of the problem that you're saying. Most people can't just put their money there, right? They're, they have to be forced to be this investor. Anyway, it's an interesting concept I've thought about. But let's, let's unpack that because it's a very, very important concept that you just talked about. Let's just take things back to an extremely simple economy. It's just you and I and maybe a couple other people, and we all have our little plot of land, and we're growing the, the corn, the wheat, the cattle, and maybe the cotton we need to make our own clothes or something mm -hmm. like that. And it's really, but we can only make enough to where we're just feeding and providing for our own family. Then all of a sudden, we, we both go out and we have the ability to, to make a tool. Well, now all of a sudden, I, I'm, I'm creating double what I need. So then you can go and you don't have to create, you don't have to grow all this cotton. You don't have to grow all this wheat or cattle or whatever. You can go do something else. You can become a doctor or maybe you can specialize in being a construction worker and start to build homes, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other guy down the street can do the same thing. And as I increase my productivity, now all of a sudden I can grow because I, I, I'm producing more than I consume. I'm growing enough stuff or producing enough stuff for the whole entire community to go do other things to where they don't have to specialize or they don't have to focus on just their own little plot of land. And to your point, they right. can be a specialist, mm -hmm. which benefits society, makes society wealthier. Right. And now what we've done is we forced everyone into being speculators. 
because you you can't grow your in fact you're going to lose purchasing power if you put your money in the bank because the rate of inflation is going to vastly exceed the interest rate that you're going to get in in a, in a bank and therefore it's going to take your time and energy away from doctoring it's right. going to take your time and energy away from farming from teaching from from constructing homes because you have to do all these other things and therefore we're producing less stuff where if we just left it in a bank done i got my seven percent return yep. because we've got two percent deflation and interest rates are five percent now i can spend a hundred percent of my time and energy on being productive at what i'm best or what i enjoy doing the most and to your point then we create more goods and services we're more productive and we're richer as a society yeah, and and I, I just want to just uh, put a punctuation mark on that. Um, what that entails is me going out and solving problems, right? That's that's right. providing value. I'm I'm yeah. I'm a servant. I'm out there trying to serve you, create, uh, solve your problems that you have. And so, like, that's the ultimate in productivity, um, right? So um, it, it's it's a big it's a big uh, difference. It's it's. We could, we could sit here and talk for days about all the little ways that this fiat money system just destroys, uh, I mean, the world, everything, right? From from relationships to personal productivity to ingenuity. I mean, all these things. It, um, and it's not just fiat. It's not just fiat. It's 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 also the Federal Reserve and in uh, trying to micromanage the economy and, and create these inflation targets. I mean, even yeah. back when we had... We were on the kind of a quasi gold standard prior to 1971. We still had significant inflation because of government and the, the Fed micromanaging in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, right. which still started to push people out the risk curve to try to get that re return. And, um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, the little guy, the average Joe and Jane, they're the ones that get screwed. I was listening to a video the other day of Milton Friedman. It was one of my favorites. I was doing some research for a video. And he, he was talking about freedom of speech. This interviewer was saying, well, Milton, I know you're kind of a little hard on the United States, but isn't it still the best country in the world? I mean, we have freedom of speech here. I mean, he listed these things. Friedman said, listen, I totally agree with you that this place is, is the best place on earth. But I, I would push back a little on some of the things you said. First, freedom of speech. He goes, yes, we have freedom of speech that's written into our constitution, but in practice, do we really have the ability to say what we want? And he used the example, uh, and this was probably in the 1970s, this interview, and, and he used the example of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, owning treasuries was the, the worst investment possible because, <laughs> because you had... Uh, you know, inflation much higher than the rate of return on the, the treasury you were getting. So you were losing purchasing power. But yet, and I didn't even know this, but yet they're every single day on the Wall Street Journal, all these banks would come out with these full page ads trying to push people to buy treasuries. Oh, it's a great investment. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. So Milton said that he would call some of his buddies that were head and CEOs of some of these banks like JP Morgan or whatever. And he'd say, listen, I, I just saw the wall street journal. You've got another full page ad trying to push people and your clients into buying 
treasuries. Mm -hmm. He said, do you buy treasuries? And the guy would say, oh, no way. (laughs) Are you kidding me? No way. And he's like, well, why not? And he said, because that's a that's a losing trade or that's a losing investment because inflation is going to run a lot higher than the interest rate the government's willing to pay you. And they say, okay, well, why are you pushing it? Why are you taking out these full page ads? And they said, because we want to stay in good favor with the government yeah. and the treasury. All the way that's back right. then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, and that's one thing that uh, over the last couple of weeks when I talked about all these, all this crazy stuff going to Puerto Rico and all we're trying to find a little bit of freedom. And I'm sure a lot of your viewers and listeners can relate to this. It kind of feels like you're, you're living in a world that's just been turned upside down and there's no rational thinking whatsoever. Mm-hmm. People have c- completely lost their mind. It's like living in a twilight zone. You really can't make heads or tails of it. You don't know what's going to happen. It's very difficult to predict the future or even understand the probabilities. And I found myself in, in the same thought pattern, but... The solution is to just go back in history. Because what we're seeing today, although we like to think it's unprecedented, and it seems like that because we haven't seen anything like this in our lifetimes, trust me, this is not unprecedented. If you read Mises, Hayek, Friedman, Dr. Thomas Sowell, mm-hmm. you see that this these things have happened in the past. And sure. even with the Cervasa sickness, going back to the Spanish flu, I did a lot of research on that. And then you go back to all of this, the things that we're seeing that we talked about, I think before we start started recording with the mainstream media and how they're trying to push this narrative. And you can't even watch a Star Wars movie yeah. for heaven's sakes anymore without just getting this woke narrative jammed down your throat constantly to the constantly. point where it's just ridiculous. It's like, just time out for a second. Just give me a break from yeah. this for just five minutes and let me enjoy a movie. And you, but you do the research and you see that this has been done many, many times. This is nothing new. They're just taking a playbook right out of Nazi Germany. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the, the global elite and the central planners are Nazis. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is they are using the exact same tactics, whether they're doing them intentionally or inadvertently. I'll leave that up to you to make to decide and to have your own opinion. But it's the ex- when you study it, when you study what uh, the well, I don't know. This is going to be on YouTube, so I'll try to keep it YouTube friendly. What what the Germans did prior to World War II, as far as their propaganda, they they really took kind of a three or four pronged approach. First and foremost, what they did is they tried to get people away from thinking rationally. And put the priority on feelings. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they really had this campaign to say, you know what, this rational thinking, it's, it's overrated. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's really about how we feel. And therefore, we should take the priority away from thinking and put it on feelings and emotions. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And then what they did, in addition to that, then what they would do is they engineered this very inexpensive radio which is kind of a novelty back in that time. So almost every household in Germany had a radio and then they put them in all the schools. And it wasn't just to hear, you know, the 
the, the politicians talk and all these things. It was for entertainment. It was to listen to plays, cultural events, music, things like this. But what they would do is they would intertwine kind of a, a, the, the propaganda narrative, the message. And it was very subtle in the early 1930s. And then it became more and more and more extreme to the point where uh, I read stories uh, in the late 30s about people going into the movie theater, just like watching a Star Wars movie today. And the propaganda at certain points in the movie was so ridiculous, even during a serious film, the crowd would start laughing hmm. because it was so blatantly obvious that this was uh, yeah. propaganda. And it would actually piss off, uh, you know, the theater owner would tell the propaganda leader and the propaganda leader would tell uh, Hitler. And, you know, he used to get really, really agitated yeah. uh, because the, the, the people were, were laughing at it. And another thing I want to point out, too, that when they won uh, the political party, and then they turned it into a dictatorship. And this was 19, I believe, 33 or 1934. They only won with like a 37% vote. It's just there was multiple parties. So they actually won with 37% of the people voting for them. So a lot of people, and even in the late 30s, you know, a lot of people like to think that all of Germany was just out there, you know, gung ho about uh, about uh, Nazi Germany. Not true. Not true. It was just a vocal minority that mm -hmm. was able to take over the entire thing. Yeah. And uh, and then what they did is they had to create a boogeyman, which always we, we know who the boogeyman was in Germany. Yeah. Now, what's what's in, in so you see this playing out with the emotion, you see this playing out with the the this propaganda just constantly. You can't even watch a basketball game anymore. You can't yeah, watch so sports. bad. You can't watch anything without this being jammed on your throat. So they're doing the same thing. But now the question becomes who is their boogeyman going to be? And when I say they, a lot of people kind of use that as an abstract term, but they means the central planners, the, the, the World Economic Forum, the, uh, you know, the global elite, the IMF, the politicians and the corporate CEOs that have drank this, this Kool-Aid. Yeah. They're the ones that are, are really pushing this narrative and trying to create this, um, again, propaganda. And who their boogeyman is going to be, I don't know. But as long as you know what's the power, well, I think we, I think we see who that boogeyman is, but we won't say that right now. <laughs> yeah, the, the powerful thing here is that people realize that this is just a story in history, and this is uh, we've seen this play before, yeah. and we know how it ends. But it doesn't have to end that way. One of the nope. great things of the road to serfdom, which you know, is that uh, Hayek wrote this. For one reason, because he he felt as though after the um, uh, World War II, that countries would be incentivized or motivated to use more central planning because their rationale would be, okay, well, it works great in war. So why wouldn't it work great in the economy? So he wanted to make sure there was a, 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 a counter narrative there. So he, he wrote that road to serve. But then if you look at the path, that Russia went down, as an example, the path of Britain and the path of the United States, they were all completely different paths. Although at the end of the war, all uh, three countries, the, the mainstream narrative in society really truly believed that socialism was the path to economic prosperity. So obviously you had Russia go one extreme way and the United States kind of 
a little bit went that way, but not too bad. And then uh, the UK was kind of right down the middle. So my point is, if we can understand history, we can understand better what's happening today, and we can better educate our fellow citizens and make decisions that'll prevent us from going down that path and staying on the road to serfdom. Yeah, great points. I try to, uh, almost every video I do, I try to pull in a, a historical narrative to kind of give that, give that uh, perspective on that. And um, I also think that's one reason why um, whatever you want to call it, the progressives, the left, whatever, are trying to destroy history. One, so we don't know it, but uh, two, two things. One, they don't want us to know how many times it's been tried and failed, right? Um, oh, absolutely, two, good point. Um, two, they don't want us to remember how good things were in the past, right? So they want to repaint America as being evil. It was founded on, on evil and a slavery, whatever. Um, so we don't yearn or, or dream of going back to the way things were. We have right. to dream of going forward. So two things. And so I would, I would encourage everyone to go back and study history. Uh, Road to Serfdom, as you said. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a must read for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you talked about them transferring from rational to feelings, to emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's postmodernism, maybe. Yeah. Um, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about that. Um, I would encourage people just to go and search out postmodernism, Jordan Peterson, and learn more about that. It was really cool. Um, and then I want to, I want to, I want to transition into something else. Now you just mentioned something about, um, in, in Nazi Germany, it was only a small minority, a vocal minority that really changed things. And there's been studies that have been done and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it only takes a very small minority to actually make change a revolution in a country, or even just to say that we don't want hormones in our milk. I mean, just a few people, a few percentage points, of people say they don't want hormones in milk. And now all the milk, the market had responded or, or uh, kosher food or whatever it may be. Um, and so um, I want to take that piece and I want to transition into, into one more thing, because you got a big thing going on and we don't have a lot of time probably left to talk about it, but um, it only takes a small minority to make a change. And so um, it doesn't take a lot. Um, I think it's, 15 or 18%, something like that is what the rule was. And then um, in the road to serfdom, I think it was chapter six, because I've gone back and gone through it a few times. He talks about rules, the rule of law, and how rules and law have to be arbitrary. They have to be set in advance. So um, it's not up to who goes through it. It's kind of like a, a basketball game, right? Or, or a game of poker. Um, That's right. Regardless of the hand I draw, the rules are there. That's right. Um, and when rules are made arbitrarily, they change them at their whim or for different people, then it creates all kinds of problems. He goes deep mm -hmm. into that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the, the small minority in that, there's a segue there and uh, tie all this together, which um, a lot of this, maybe, as you said, it's not fractional reserve banking. It's not even the fiat money system, uh, but it's really the Federal Reserve. Mm. And a lot of what the Federal Reserve is creating all these problems from um well, it starts at the money, but it creates all these social problems and societal problems. Every, everything, I think, stems from that, even the response we've had to this pandemic. Um, and so if we can go back and change that. Now, again, to your point, it, it takes a very small minority um, to do that. And um, a lot of people, they focus on the problem so much in you and I, in our videos, we, we do talk about the problems because we're trying to uh, alert that. But people don't always have good action of what they can do. Right. And uh, and you're doing something. You're doing something about that. Um, so maybe let's just talk about that. Maybe there's something that at least people can cheer for. Right. We all want that hope, that optimism and a, a small minority. So why don't you talk about what you're actually doing to maybe try and fix that? Yeah, we're taking legal action against the Fed. 
And it goes right back to what you're saying. We have become a nation of men and not of law. And, it, and, it, and it's got to be the opposite. We need to, the, the focus has to be on law and the men abiding by law. It, the sports analogy was just absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got a baseball game, you've got the same rules over and over and over again. And no matter how much someone would want to change the rules, you don't do them. It's still three strikes and you're out. Right. Well, what we've been doing is we've been ignoring those rules. Those rules are the Constitution mm-hmm. and the Federal Reserve Act. And we've just been, you know, whatever politician, whatever they feel like doing when they wake up in the morning, well, that's what we're doing. Whatever they feel is going to uh, buy them or get them the most votes, then that all of a sudden becomes instant policy. And that's how you get to a dictatorship. Right. That's how we get to the road of serfdom. That's how we get a Stalin. That's how we get a Mussolini. That, that's how this, th- these things happen. So my point <clears throat> is I wanted to, to push back on this and say, listen, no, we, we've got to at least stand up for what's right. And we've got to stand up for the law to make sure that it's constraining the people who are in power. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that's protecting us from them. Right. It's the law. It's the Constitution. And in this case, it's the Federal Reserve Act. So but, what but happens- the Constitution is only as only good if someone actually uses it to restrain them. Right. They're, they're going to run away as much as they can. So we some we the people have to use that Constitution to somehow restrain them, I guess. Yeah. And, and that's not to go off on a tangent. But whenever you hear someone talk about the Constitution being a living and breathing document, yeah. That is just utter nonsense. That's yeah. just that's just complete nonsense. And that just means they want to ignore it so they can do whatever they think is right, which yeah. is, is, is the road to hell that's paved with good intentions. But yeah. uh, going back to the Fed, when in 2020, you know, I'd always been critical of the Fed as, as you are. But what they did in March and April of 2020 was so blatantly a violation of the law. Yeah. Of the Federal Reserve Act. They cannot buy corporate debt. They can't buy junk debt. And people say, well, they set up a special purpose vehicle. Come on. <laughs> Come on. That's like me uh, hiring some me hiring a hitman, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it really pissed me off. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is we're ignoring the law, and this is what protects us from them. But nobody mentioned it. I mean, you and I were talking about it, but I mean, nobody, I'm talking about the mainstream media. Yeah. You would think that CNBC would be shouting it from the rooftops, saying, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, time out here. Yeah. They can't buy corporate debt. That's completely against the federal. But they didn't utter a word. Bloomberg, same thing. And I'm like, have we gotten to the point where as a society, if we just think something is good, then we're just going to turn our back on the law and ignore it and say, well, we'll give them a pass this time. I mean, that's a a slippery slope. So I was having dinner a few months ago with my good friend, Robert Barnes, who is a a high profile lawyer, constitutional free speech lawyer. He represented some of the, uh, not all, but some of the Covington kids. He represented Alex Jones when Jones uh, sued Twitter and he's represented Wesley Snipes in the, you know, the tax thing and whatnot. Yeah. So a lot of these high profile cases. And he's a, a, a real, real smart guy. And he yeah. 
really does know history well, great lawyer. So I, I just had this crazy idea. I said, Robert, is there any way that we could push back against the Fed? If we could, uh, you know, not sue the Fed, but if we could, you know, just get them to abide by the law. He says, well, there is something called the FOIA, which is the Freedom of Information Act. And it's been used successfully against the Fed before. Some Most people are very positive about this campaign, but a few people push back said, oh, you're just wasting your time because the Fed has got immunity or whatever. No, not true. There's been Bloomberg, uh, in fact, in 2009, 2010, there were some Bloomberg reporters that actually used the Freedom of Information Act to, uh, to use the law to their advantage to force the Fed to disclose certain docu documents. So he said, you can do this. I said, great, let's, let's, let's figure out how to make this thing happen here. So the stage one is you request documents from the Fed. And basically they tell you to pound sand. Now, if they give you the information, then, then great, then, then we don't need to uh, take legal action, but they most likely won't. So assuming they don't give you all the documents you request, then you go after them or sue them, whatever you want, whatever word you want to use, using the Freedom of Information Act. So that's stage one. So that costs about $100,000 in legal fees. It takes about a year to do this. And so I said, Robert, I'll put up the first $25,000 out of my pocket. And then let's just set up a GoFundMe campaign, because I know a lot of people would want to be a part of this movement. And I, with the GoFundMe campaign, I said, for every dollar that people put in above and beyond the first 25 that I put in out of pocket, I'll match it dollar to dollar. So when we get to our $100,000 goal, I'll put in 62.5 and everyone else, the community will put in 37.5. And that's what we'll use for this stage one. And we reached our GoFundMe goal within in under 36 hours. Wow. And it was, you know, people were really on board. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to move forward. It's uh, a lot of people have been warning me that, oh, I'm, I'm uh, you're going to end up like JFK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to say it, but yeah, yeah, they've been doing it. But hey, listen, I don't know if, if you said this when we were recording or before, but someone has got to stand up for what is right. And yeah. someone's got to stand up for the law that protects us from them. Someone's got to stand up for the constitution. Yes. Someone's got to stand up for the Federal Reserve Act. And at, at the very least, uh, you know, to get, at the very least, if, if this creates awareness that people that didn't know about the Fed, didn't know about inflation or didn't understand any of the things that we've talked about in this video, if they just kind of wake up to that, like, oh, well, wait a minute, what, what is this? What is this Fed thing? What is this George yeah. guy, this crazy guy? What's this? What's going on here? Maybe that puts them on the path to economic enlightenment, let's yep. say. Maybe that from that they read the road to serfdom. Maybe from that they they start uh, they get interested in gold or Bitcoin or some sort of real money that doesn't have this this counterparty risk involved to it, something that's deflationary. Right. Maybe they start to do and that was one of the main drivers, in addition to just putting our foot down, uh, that led to this uh, campaign that yeah. um, we're in the middle of now. 
Well, it definitely worked with Ron Paul. I mean, Ron Paul started that in the Fed campaign. I'm wearing the shirt in the Fed. And um, it, 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 it yeah. brought a lot of attention. I mean, it brought me in. It, you know, I'm sure it probably brought you yeah. in. It, it brought a lot of attention, brought a lot of people. I always like to reference a quote from Henry Ford 100 years ago. And he said, I'll paraphrase it, but he said, if the, if the people knew how the banking system worked, there'd be a revolution before morning. That's right. And so it's just about letting people know how this works. And so, yeah, I guess even if you fail, you win, hopefully by getting the, the media attention that you need. And, and uh, to, to your point, we did talk about off, offline. I mean, it's time for somebody to stand up. The constitution is only good if someone uses it to, to restrain these people. And, and uh, you're, you're putting your money where your mouth is, uh, literally. Um, and so, so I love to see it. So about a year, I guess, is the time frame that you're looking at to see anything real big happen. Yeah, right now. In fact, I just spoke with Robert yesterday. He said, anything that you want, as far as documents, go ahead and email them to me because I'm getting a list of, of what I'm going to initially request from the Fed. So what's kind of cool is I'm actually going to email everyone that through GoFundMe, you can do like bulk emails. Uh -huh. I'm going to email everyone that contributed to the campaign and ask them, uh, what they would like to request as far as documents from the Fed. So we'll kind of crowdsource that as well. Yeah. And then I'm reaching out to some of our good friends to ask them if there's anything they'd like to, to throw into the mix. I, I've reached, I won't name any names, but a lot of the uh, the macro big shots on, on FinTwit where everyone would recognize their names and yeah. guys and gals that are the smartest people in this business I've reached out to them and will be reaching out to them more and say, hey, if there's anything that you'd like us to request, just let me know. Yeah, there's a few vocal um, uh, former Fed insiders. So definitely reach out to those people. They probably know where the bodies are buried. Uh, I will. Although yeah, I it's, you know, like you said, a lot, lot, of it, lot of it was 2020 <laughs> stuff, right? So a lot of it's, a lot of it's newer stuff. Uh, that's, that's really cool. So where do people go to keep up on this? Do you have a website set up? Um, it's, I think it's georgegammon.com forward slash end the fed. I believe that's, that's, we've just got it under my URL, but we, we hit our goal so quickly, but people that, want to keep uh, up with it. Right. And pay attention. Yeah. Well, what we're going to do for that Mark is I'm just going to interview Robert like once every six months on my channel. Okay. So he can give us an update as to what he's doing legally and how that's, uh, you know, the, the, the exact things that he's doing and how the game plan is being executed and kind of where we are along the timeline. And now that segues into the next thing that we're going to talk about. And that's uh, the live show that we're doing. And this yeah. isn't live like over Zoom or Skype. This, this is actually real people. Wow. Meeting face to face, <laughs> enjoying each other's company. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. It's a, it's a live event I'm doing called Rebel Capitalist Live. And it's a conference, a weekend conference where I've got uh, people like you. Yep. You're going to be a, a, I'll a be speaker. There. Yep. yep. Lynette Zhang. We're going to have uh, uh, Jeff Snyder. We've got uh, Brent Johnson, several people like that. I, I've got a few more people that have committed to it that everyone would recognize, but I, I don't want to say their names yet. One is a, a very good friend of ours who yes. uh, we visited in Phoenix. I, yeah. That's all I'll say. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but, that's but good. People are really going to love uh, the lineup we have. And you can go to rebelcapitalistlive.com uh, to check that out. That's June 11th through the 13th in Miami. So really looking forward to that. And, but my point was Barnes is going to be there as well. 
Yep. And he's going to speak for an hour. And the whole topic is going to be this uh, FOIA uh, legal action that we're taking against the Fed. Yeah, nice. I'll make sure to uh, put the links of both uh, the Rebel Capitalist Live and um, just for the in the Fed stuff in the show notes here. So anybody who's listening or watching, uh, you can make sure to get those links. Uh, but that that's so cool, George. I think uh, like in my experience, and I'm sure the same, I mean, uh, like I said, we spend so much time talking about the problems and I see the comments, 5,000 comments a week and everyone's just like, what do we do? What do we do? Yeah, and right. so giving somebody something actual, tangible um, is is super, super important. And uh, putting together the Rebel Capitalist Live is also uh, really important uh, because we want to, you know, we want to we want to understand the problems. We don't want to be an ostrich with our head in the sand. Um, but at the same time, we want to have something tangible that we can do, right? Something we can take action on. Um, and so um, I'm planning on bringing some heat when I'm there talking, and uh, hopefully, every, you know, everybody everybody that comes will will walk away with more knowledge, but um, not just knowledge that uh, almost uh, sometimes ignorance is bliss, I guess. Um, I think that only actionable knowledge is power, right? Um, otherwise, yeah, you just fill your head with a bunch of crap. It's about actionable knowledge. You're going to be getting tons of that and a lot of things that you that people haven't heard. A lot of real estate. I didn't mention the real estate guys. Kenny and, and Hartman are going to be there as well. Yeah, nice. Ken McElroy and Jason Hartman. But it, it, you're going to get a lot of investments. I mean, this is going to absolutely blow your mind. But I think what might even be more valuable than that, Mark, is just a, a group of like-minded, liberty-loving people yeah. coming together and enjoying each other's company, networking, and learning as a group and really feeding off the, the everyone's positivity, right? Yeah. I, I know that, you know, you, you're kind of in a, in a hideout there in a bunker in, in PR yeah. and I'm in, you know, my little Airbnb, as you can see, I'm, I'm traveling around trying to rent a house here in, in Florida and we're all kind of in our own little world. But I know if I'm ever just like, man, what is going on with the world right now? If I can just get on an hour conversation with someone like you, Yep. or someone like uh, Schiff or something like that, you at the end of the conversation, you come away like kind of recharged. Like, yeah, yeah right. There, there's someone else there that, that, that gets it. Man, that, that was such an awesome conversation I just had with Mark. And it just gives you that, that energy, right? And I think that there's going to be 500 attendees there. We've got, I don't know, like 12 or 14 speakers lined up. And I think that's where the real value is above and beyond the investment knowledge and the wisdom. And, and then it's a big social event, too. We've got a couple of cocktail parties where we do meet and greet where, you know, of course, everyone's wanting to want to get their picture taken with Mark Moss. Uh. So he'll, he'll, he'll be there taking selfies and, yeah. you know, having a good stiff drink with everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's such an uh, important point. I mean, back to kind of uh, recapping kind of what we said, right? Just a small minority to create change. And so obviously we're both doing that through the messaging, but getting together, um, I believe that um, to your point, I mean, having these conversations, it really sharpens your viewpoints. And um, so to go and hear this stuff and then be able to hang out with like-minded people and then discuss it deeper, um, asking questions, bouncing ideas. And it, 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 it leaves you with a whole nother level of understanding that you just couldn't get, you know, just watching YouTube videos and, and, and to your point as well, right. I think the saying is something like, uh, to go fast, go alone, but to go far, go with the team. And so to have that community, 
Um, I've found, uh, I use this analogy in some trainings I do, um, like a crab, a, a, a bucket full of crabs. And when a, when a crab is trying to crawl out of the bucket, the other crabs yeah. are pulling it back down. And, you know, if you go out with your friends and you're all trying to get on a diet and they're like, ah, oh, you can skip your diet tonight, you know, or you're training for whatever marathon and no, you can take the day off tomorrow. You catch up Monday. Right. Um, and so you need to be with like-minded people that aren't, that aren't trying to pull you back and, and not intentional. Um, they're just not the same. Right. And so we need right. people, um, that push us. And so great stuff. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that analogy. And you're, uh, what is the sum total of the five people you spend the Something most like time that. with? Something yeah. like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Cool. Well, man, this has been a great talk. We took it all the way from the, the beginning, uh, real world problems that we're all trying to work on. Um, you mentioned Atlas Shrugged. I was kind of talking to my wife about that the other day um, because in Atlas Shrugged, everybody kept, well, the productive people kept disappearing uh, and not, not being taken out. They were going somewhere. Right. Um, and uh, right. And, and then you mentioned I'm in my hideout over here in, in PR with a few people. And, it, and it's a shame that we're seeing these productive people all trying to go and find places, but, uh, but we'll be in Miami. So with that, I think we'll go ahead and sign it off. Uh, like I said, I'll put all those down there. Anything else you want to say, closing it out? No, I just appreciate having me. Uh, you having me on your show and I just love the conversation. It was awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, George.